Well, you guys get to keep your seat. You don't have to come up on the platform, but uh, we're glad that you're here. If I haven't met you yet, I am Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here. And um, we're going to be doing a reading in just a moment from Psalm 66. So if you want to open your Bible and be uh, prepared to read from Psalm 66, we'll get there in just a second. I want to say a special word of appreciation to Ryan Bergauer. Great job last week, man. I, uh, well, was it that good? You guys have been letting me know all week how good it was. Uh, I got the message. So. Uh, but we'll look forward to having other opportunities, Ryan. That was uh, a very important message for us. Thank you. Today we're going to be talking about a uh, kind of familiar subject because uh, as we continue in this series of what does it mean to be the people of God and what a privilege it is that we get to be the people of God. Is that amazing? That's amazing. That he would so uh, draw near to us and allow us to draw near to him and engage us that he would allow us to be his people. But uh, one of the things that's characteristic to that is that we become a worshiping people. The people of God are the people who get God. It's the people who understand how great, how magnificent, how awesome, how transcendent, how glorious he is. And because we get it. We're moved by that. It stirs us. It ignites a passion in us. This is characteristic of people of God. And I wonder if that's characteristic of your heart. So let me uh, do a little uh, journey here with us by way of comparison. Several years ago when I was driving my family out here to the northwest... And yes, I'm originally from the South, if you hadn't picked that up already. Um, one of the things that we wanted to make sure that we did in our journey out here was that we would uh, come across where the Grand Canyon is. How many of you have been there? Yeah, most of you. Um, I had, uh, growing up in the South, of course, heard of the Grand Canyon. I had probably studied something about it in school. I no doubt had seen pictures Maybe even seen uh, a movie and, you know, on the big screen, uh, stuff about an adventure taking place in the Grand Canyon or whatever. I still was not prepared when I drove up to one of the rims of the Grand Canyon where you could get out and look. Can you remember the first time you stood at the rim of the Grand Canyon? I'm telling you, it took my breath. I'm looking at this thing, and it was so much bigger. It was so much more magnificent than I could have dreamt. In fact, my children were really small at that time, and it just seemed so big and so consuming, I couldn't take my hands off my kids. I kept being afraid they were going to be swallowed up by it. And even though there were railings and all kinds of protective things, man, I'm standing feet behind you know, all that stuff because I'm like, I'll be swallowed up in that thing if... I am not careful and by slip and by fall. When you um, put it in its proper perspective, though, the Grand Canyon is a very small piece of this world. And this world is a very small place in our solar system. And our solar system is a very small part of our galaxy. Our galaxy, small part of the universe. All of it 
having been spoken into existence by a creator God who said, let there be. How big is God? How awesome is God? How magnificent is God? And when we came to the edge of the Grand Canyon that first time, and we were, whoa. When we really get it about God, we come into His presence in the same kind of way. It just takes our breath. It causes us to gasp. It causes us to recognize our smallness and His greatness and to worship Him. And so it's no wonder that the psalmist said in 33.8, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. What kind of God can do that? But an almighty, magnificent God. When we start talking about worship, because it's a familiar deal, we have a lot of familiar images that come up into our mind, right? To the screen of your heart. I um, did a little search on worship, and I, you know, I encourage you, when you go home, just run a search on worship. And like in that, in a split second, you'll have a billion results. Click images and begin to see what kind of images come up with worship. And 90-something percent of all of those images are of people doing this. You know, they got the hands stretched and their mouth is agape. They're either singing or they're in awe or there's something like that. 90-something percent. Uh, or in some kind of gathering situation, hands outstretched, and that's worship. But friend, I want to say to you, that is like 1% of worship, not 90-something percent. And you're gathering here for one hour out of 168 hours in this week, is not 90-something percent of worship. It's a little percent of worship. And so if we are the people of God who are a worshiping people of God, then we've got to understand this is not something that happens at 11 o'clock on Sundays. Only. Or even primarily. This is something that happens 24-7 168 hours across a week. You go, wait a minute, some of that time I'm sleeping. Exactly. Even in your sleep. Friend, when you find yourself going to sleep with God being the last thing on your mind and on your heart, and you find yourself awakening in the morning where God is the first thing on your mind and on your heart, there are things that have transpired in your heart throughout the night. Godward. And then in all the waking hours... You go, yeah, I've got work, I've got family, I've got kids, I've got responsibilities, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. Exactly. Engaging God in every second of every 
day. You go, Scott, you're always so idealistic. You're always putting the bar up there. You're always talking about these big grand things. No, this is what the Bible says people of God do. No, I don't do that perfectly every day, every week, every month. But part of our aspiration, part of our heart is, how do I become a more thorough, worshiping, uh, pervasively worshiping person? So that the bulk of every day and of every week and of every month has found me being a worshiping person toward God. And you go, well, uh, I'm not even sure what that looks like. Let me mention a couple of words to you that are really going to stand out in the readings that you're doing this week in our Read Through the Bible campaign. Uh, and, and these words are descriptive of what you're going to read. You're not going to read these words over and over again. You're going to read what it describes over and over again. And, and the first one is humility. What you're going to find in your readings this week is how ludicrous it is to think that there's much to be excited about who we are. You're going to be reading story after story that shows the smallness of man, the minuteness of man, and the greatness of God. You're going to read over and over again about how God has plans, and God has purposes, and God has designs, and He sees to those things coming to pass. And nothing thwarts God. Nothing hinders God. And when we see that contrast, that juxtaposition between God and ourselves, it moves us to a proper place. The Grand Canyon is very, very small compared to the universe. We are very small compared to God. And that brings about humility. Humility is mostly about making much of God and little of self. Thinking much of God. Thinking little of self. Being engaged in activity and concerns. Much with God and little for self. Now, the... Are you getting what I'm saying? This flies exactly opposite to how our days typically go. Our days typically are saturated with self. The last thing we think about when we go to bed is self. The first thing we think about when we get up is self. The thing we're thinking about throughout the day is self. Is this going to make me happy? Is this going to make me sad? Is this going to be hard for me? Is this going to be easy for me? Is this something I'm going to enjoy? Is this something I'm going to dread? Me, 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 me. And what the readings this week will help us to see is that the the people of God so get God, they began to have a revolutionized reorientation of who they are and how they live. So it increasingly becomes about God and not about me. The second word that you're going to come to, to terms with is holiness. And here we're not talking about the holiness of God. We're talking about your holiness. You go, well, uh-oh, I'm not a very holy person. Okay, let's say it again here because we've said it many, many times. When we start talking about the biblical notion of holiness, we are not primarily talking about moral behavior. We're not primarily talking about are you a good person, bad person, doing good things or bad things. That's a part of it. That fits into the greater notion of what holiness is, which is basically this. It's a positional statement, not a behavioral statement. A positional statement meaning I'm positioned with God. I'm positioned away from all the stuff that surrounds me, all of this culture, all of this world. I'm separated from that and separated to Him. So humility... 
consumed with him, not so much with me. Holiness, positioned in him, not so much positioned in this world. And that's what you're going to see in your readings this week. That the people of God are taken with him and finding themselves increasingly positioned in him. So that it's about God and with God. About God and with God. That's worship. So that when you're going to work in that godless secular workplace, wherever that is, it's about God and with God. He's got you there. You go, no, no, I went through those 16 interviews and all those hours of conversations. Okay. He got you there. That's what you're going to read in the text this week. He is so sovereign. He is so at work. There's nothing that happens that he didn't have his hand on in some kind of way in this world. He's got you there for reasons beyond you earning a living, for reasons beyond your success track, for reasons beyond whatever ladder you're climbing. He's got you there for eternal purposes. It's about him. And I can't come close to those eternal purposes unless I am with him. You're at school, you're at the market, you're at uh, the place where you recreate or work out, you're in some social place. It's about him. It's with him. So, obviously, this is all on the front burner of my thinking because I've been kind of saturated and soaking in it all week and and yesterday uh, I had to go to a couple of different places and and it was just heightened for me. I go to this place and I deal with a a, a cashier. It's about him. It's with him. What's he doing with this, this gal right now? How can I pray for her? What am I joining God in praying upon her life? I don't know her. I don't know what's going on in her life, but he does. And it was that way from place to place that I found myself yesterday. Making much of him, separating unto him. So, what we find as one of our lead characters in the readings of this week is, of course, King David. That I, for these uh, moments, going to refer to as Paradoxical Dave. Because he is a paradox, just as we are. He uh, just does... The thing much more grand, much more grandiose than what we do. Because uh, few people worshipped God as well as David. You've been reading that already. You're going to read more about it. There's few people that had a heart toward God, that had a, a consumption with God, that were taken with God, that were in awe of God, that were expressive about God like David. And there were few people. That broke the heart of God and shamefully dealt with the presence of God than David. And so uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time here because you're going to read about it this week. But in 2 Samuel 8, you'll see that Dave is so favored by God in every warring scenario that he finds himself, God's giving him Victory after victory after victory after victory. He can't lose because of the way God is with him and that these battles are about him.
But it's only a few chapters later in chapter 11 that he will, you know, be tired. He's been doing a lot of battles. He sent the guys off to fight the next battle. He's decided to stay at the palace. He's wandering around the palace one day a little aimlessly. He doesn't have the same heart that's guarded and that's intent and that's about God and so on like that. And, and he sees Bathsheba, you know, in the distance on a rooftop bathing. And you know the rest of that story. And he sins with Bathsheba and he sins in a big cover-up around Bathsheba. And you have these great polar opposites, these great extremes of a guy who gets God and is taken with God. And shamefully deals with the presence of God as he sins in such ways. We also live that kind of paradox. How do we maneuver our way? How do we navigate our way through these uh, navigational hazards of life so that we consistently remain a worshiping people of God. I'm going to mention just a few things to you and we'll wrap up. The first is this, is that we acknowledge sin and waywardness. And I mean, we acknowledge sin and waywardness all the time, all the time. We are depraved. We are sin sick. We talked a few moments ago about what a beautiful person is. If some, uh, if others of us were able to know the thoughts that some of us have, it would be grossly embarrassing. Some of the thoughts that some of us have are as ugly and as wretched and sinful as they can be. We are depraved, broken, busted people and our proclivity is to wander away from God not to go toward God the scriptures tell us this in Psalm 53 2 and 3 you'll read it this week God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who get it who seek after him they have all how many is all they have all fallen away together they have become corrupt There is none, how many is none, who does good? Not even one. You go, wait a minute, I I know a good guy. I know a guy who has done, I, I, I mean, this guy is like the embodiment of good. No, no, it's Grand Canyon compared to the universe. It may look in this perspective, that is pretty good. But in comparison to the goodness of God, to the universal greatness of God, no. It's fallen and broken. And nobody gets that, the Scripture says. Nobody gets it, that great chasm of difference between us and God, as we'll see in a minute ago, except for those that God has helped to see it. The second thing is that we not only constantly acknowledge, I'm a sinful guy, I'm a wayward guy, this is my proclivity, this is my busted way, this is the way I'm bent, but I also purpose to repent. It's not enough to just acknowledge it. I must repent, 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 repent. I must stop, 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 turn, 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 go, go, go toward God. 
That's what repentance is about. Asking him for forgiveness. Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity, I said. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. How remarkable is it that a holy God would extend mercy to us and forgive us of sin. I confessed it, I repented, I called upon you, and you forgave. So this is one of the, uh, talking about paradoxical Dave, this is one of the incredible things about him. He can not only sin incredibly well, he repented incredibly well. The man knew how to turn it around once he had gone away. And then, see, in the third place, where people of God who are persevering and pressing on in worshiping God know how to be instructed by God. They know how to be counseled by God. Can you be instructed by God? Can God actually say something to you without you getting offended about it? This is wrong. Oh, man, don't say that. Can can he actually instruct you? And counsel you? Notice how the scripture says this. Psalm 32, 8 and 9. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye. Upon you. So don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle. Now, parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. Where you instruct and you counsel with the eye. I've been in social settings when my children were small and they were beginning to do something and they would get the eye. They knew what that meant. No, it didn't mean they always responded to me. But they knew what the eye was. I even get that from Sherry sometimes. But anyway. <laughs> guys, I got an amen. How about that? All right. Uh, but that, that's a relational word. Because of our being his people. Because we know him. Because we hang with him. Because it's all about him and with him. You come to recognize his eye. You come to see what's he looking at. How's he concerned about something? How's he? And, and you're about to go wandering into something, and you catch, you get that eye. You get that sense. Uh uh-uh. uh, uh uh. Don't go there. And in that moment, he's giving you grace to say no and don't go there. Or you can override that, just like your kids can override your eye, and you can go there. Can you be instructed? Can you be counseled by the eye of God? And then notice a people of God who are worshiping people, they perpetuate that in their heart by telling it. The more I tell about the acts of God, the more I tell about the deeds of God, the more I tell about the greatness and the magnificence and and answered prayers and how God did this and how God did that, the more it solidifies that in my own heart, the more it stirs that worshiping Activity in my own heart. You're going to see it over and over again in your readings this week. So let's look at some of that in Psalm 66. uh, Because it's said so magnificently, I wanted us to look at several of those verses. So you have found the text. We'll begin in verse 1. Shout 
for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him. Now, this is written thousands of years after the Exodus. And yet they're still talking about the Exodus. They're still talking about imparting the sea. They're still talking about how the Hebrews were able to get away from slavery by going across as if it were dry, dry ground. And so part of what we're learning here is when we're talking about the deeds of God, we're not just talking about contemporary today stuff. We're also talking about stuff he's done in times past. Historical things. Biblical things. And so we still talk about the cross. We still talk about how Christ lived a perfect, sinless life, how he died an atoning death on our stead and in place of us. He took our punishment. We still talk about those old ancient things and that by his death and by his resurrection, we have life. But he also says, and look on down with me at uh, verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. What he's done for me today. See, this is, he's done great things for all of us in times past. He's doing great things for, for all of us in times present. Let me tell you what he's doing for me today. And so, friend, can't, you know, if we were to take the time, could you say a good word about God right now? You've just spent the last seven days about God and with God. What could you say for God? See, it, it doesn't have to be... Well, I was about to get into a tornado and God stopped the tornado. It doesn't have to be these stupendous, incredible things. It's all the small things that he has done that matter. How he's been there for us in whatever moment. And then, assemble with others for worship. This hour on Sunday... I said a moment ago, is a very small part of a worshiping person's life. It's like one hour out of 168 in the week. But at the same time, it's a very significant hour. If you've been a worshiping person all through the week, in a variety of ways, you've worshipped Him in the way that you've worked. You've worshipped Him in the way you've done family. You've worshipped Him in the way that you've been social with other people, etc., then this is an extra special hour when we all, as worshiping people, come together to worship. And that's why the psalmist said in 122, verse 1, I was glad, I was thrilled when they said to me, hey, let's go to the house of the Lord. I don't want to miss the Sunday gathering. It's not like, gosh, should I go do this fun thing or go to church? I don't want to miss. It's that kind of a priority for me. You go, yeah, well, it's kind of connected to your job. No. (laughs) If I didn't have the privilege of doing what I get to do, the hour on Sunday would still be hugely, hugely important for me. I go on vacation. I'm not missing a Sunday gathering somewhere. 
I was glad. I'm glad when they say, hey, yeah, let's go to the gathering of God's people for worship. And then the final thing that I'll say to you is that we perpetuate this worshiping way of life in us when we pray for and when we serve others for God's blessings. This is why God has us in the world. This is why when we have come to faith and we become his son or we become his daughter, he didn't just take us on home right there and then. But we are now in this world as ambassadors of his. Get to say a good word about him. Get to point others toward him. Get to be light and salt to help people to see and to taste the goodness of the Lord. And get to join him in his activity in the city to dispense blessing. Now, I don't fully get it. Why in the world would God want to bless a bunch of messed up people who ignore him or say he doesn't exist or shake their fist at him or whatever? But he does. That's how great his magnanimity is toward us. And so the psalmist said it this way in 122.6. Pray for the peace of the city. His was Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of the city in which you live. May they be secure. May they sense the prosperity of what is involved in a relationship with God. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your, the city, the people that are all around me. I will seek your good for God's sake. What do you mean for God's sake? When I seek his good for the people that are around me and he does good for them, he's glorified. He's honored. You get another glimpse, another snapshot of how magnificent he is. So it's for his sake he keeps doing these things so that we can behold how wondrous that he is. I'm going to ask you to join me in a shout of praise. A shout, because that's what the scriptures call it. So we can't talk about worship, 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 worship without having some expression of it. And so right out of Psalm 122, I'm going to invite you to exclaim and to shout unto the Lord these truths and these realities about him. Uh, I'll read the black leader part, and if you'll join in on the red congregational part wholeheartedly. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who satisfies you with good. The Lord works righteousness. The Lord is merciful and gracious, not dealing with us according to our sin. As high as the heavens above, as far as the east is from the west, 
As a father shows compassion. So the Lord shows compassion to us. For he knows our frame. He Bless the Lord, you his angels. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless his holy name. And amen. Amen. All right. What are you going to do about what we've been talking about today? Some of you are on a journey of faith. You're trying to figure out, is this whole God thing the real deal? We've been inviting you for week after week. Would you consider the evidence? Would you examine who is this God? Who are these people of God? What are these claims that he has on our lives? Is it worth it? It, Does it make sense? Is it true? Will you continue to examine and consider that evidence? Will you come to a point of belief? Belief meaning more than just intellectually ascending to it. Yeah, that's probably true. But committing, betting your life on that. Will you cooperate with God regarding your humility? He is at work in and around you all the time for your humility. Because when we are humble and we're making much of Him, life is totally different. When it's all about me, life can become very uh, constrained, very small, very difficult. But when it's all about Him, it becomes a totally different deal. And He's always at work in us toward our humility. He's always throwing grace at the humble. He's always resisting the proud. That's how He's at work. He, will you cooperate with His work for His Humility in you. And then will you cooperate with him regarding your holiness? He is looking to see, will you join me? Will you do this life thing with me? Not, you know, as some distant, uh, yeah, he probably exists, you know, that you occasionally refer to. But that in all of the minutia of the day by day, he's with you, with you, with you, with you. About him, with him. Let me pray for you. So, Father, I pray for my friends today. As you have been speaking into our hearts, as you have been illuminating our minds, I pray that the truth would come lodging in the home of our heart. Lord, would you grip us? Would you hold us? Would you compel us and and, and help us to become convicted and convinced about this reality? of being a people of God who worship God. In Jesus' name we pray. For His sake. Amen.